If you would take your Bibles and turn to Matthew's Gospel. I saw a bumper sticker years ago with a play on words said, No Jesus, K N O W. And then it had dash, No fear, N O fear. And then on the bottom it said, No Jesus, N O Jesus, no fear, K N O W fear. It was well put in the sense that it makes you think that when you have Jesus, that you don't have to be afraid. And uh, tonight's, my one concept I want to stress to you through all the passages is that you can face any fear with Jesus. You can. And I think that in my mind, at least, that's the key to struggling with defeating and conquering fear is to do it with Jesus. And I want to show you very specifically and particularly tonight what that would look like if you were doing it, how you would go about it. And there are seven passages in Matthew's Gospel Uh, Do not fear is mentioned. All seven of them have to do with Jesus in one way or the other. And five out of the seven do not be afraid or do not fear statements are made by Jesus. Two of them are made by angels. And so um, they're not, and, and so just, let me just right off the bat give you a quick application from the context of Matthew's gospel when it comes to this statement. And that is the answers to fear on earth come from heaven. Uh, That's a pretty simple application, if you ask me, that the ultimate answers of how we're going to handle our fears and overcome them, um, they do not ultimately come from man. Uh, They don't come from our own strength. We need heavenly intervention. We need God to step into our fearful circumstances and situation and speak to us in them uh, to get us the promises and the reassurances that we need. So, the first thing I wanted to press on you just as an overall arching statement is that you can't fight fear by yourself. You're not the Lone Ranger. It's not some technique that you're going to learn to breathe a certain way. Um, It's not that you're going to sit down and it's none of those things. It's that it's having Jesus in your life, recognizing what that means and putting it into practice. Uh, It's his power. It's his presence. It's his promises. It's him. It's all about him. And I found the closer that you get to him doesn't eliminate having fears, but it certainly does change the way that you face them. And so we're not talking about eliminating fear tonight. We're talking about facing it the way that he would want you to. Uh, Our seven texts are as follows. The one we're going to learn from Joseph, and and we're going to look at fear and how it comes in three different categories. The first one, namely, is um, facing your social fears. And by social, I'll explain it when we get to Joseph in chapter 1. In verse 20, when it says, when he is told by the angel, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. Um, We're going to look at that command and how he faced his fear and the social ramifications of it. In the middle of the gospel, um, we're going to look at how to face your physical fears. And there are two types of them that we're going to look at. In chapter 10, we're going to look at physical uh, fear that comes from suffering. uh, Namely, because you're on mission with Jesus and you've decided to follow him as his disciple. The second kind of fear, the first is suffering, and the second one is storms. And in chapter 14 and verse 27 is the second kind of uh, physical fear that you can have, and that's of things that can happen to you in life. Um, Again, actually related right to mission, um, but we'll show you that when we get there. Those are 
the uh, middle ones. The first one was Joseph. The middle three are, are actually are that physical one. And actually four if you count the second passage. And the last two, how to face your personal fears. And these are the resurrection ones. So I wanted to throw a little bit. This is a little bit of the passage I'm doing Sunday. Um, and these are your personal ones in, in 28, 5, and 10. Um, the uh, angel says to the women twice who were at the tomb that day, do not be afraid. And uh, so there's spiritual realities there, seeing the angel and understanding what it truly means for Jesus to have died and rose again is what helps us conquer our fears so we know that he's with us. So we're going to try to tackle that. Um, one of those at a time. Fear not. That's the command. There's 360, some of them in the Bible, one for every day of the year. Um, it's not, an, fearing not is not the absence, you've heard before, of a fearful situation, but the presence of a faithful Savior. And, and I want you to know that we're not talking about tonight that if you follow Jesus close enough and you live enough for him and you recognize that he's with you, that you'll never have fears. In fact, Psalm 56.3 says, the psalmist David says, when I am afraid, when, not if, when I am afraid, then I will trust in you. So tonight you're not more of a Christian because you don't fear or be less of a Christian or maturity because you do fear. It's not that we all, there's a healthy part of our emotions, all of them, including the ones we might view as negative, including fear. Fear is a good thing. Uh, you walk out the street, you should be afraid that you might be hit by a car. There are good things. There is a certain level of fear uh, about whether you're going to get COVID-19 or not, that is realistic. I mean, there is a good level of healthy fear that you should have of diseases and viruses and oncoming cars and of other things as well. Um, but there's a line that crosses over and that healthy fear can become sinful. And I hope tonight that you'll have a clear understanding of where the line is drawn and how you can keep from crossing it. So let's unpack them, can we? Uh, one at a time tonight. Matthew chapter 1, let me start in context, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, key word, we're going to come back to it, to Joseph, because they came, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her to shame, you might want to parenthesis public shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, here's our phrase, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says uh, later on, the next verses down, if you, that he did exactly what God commanded him to do. Um, betrothal period, when you were Jewish, it's not like American marriage that you got betrothed. It was just as if you were married, um, but you had no sexual relations. You didn't live together. Um, you'd get betrothed, and there would be an agreement between the dads. Uh, you're going to marry my daughter, and vice versa. And then a, about a year usually would elapse. The boy would go home. They didn't usually, most of the time, because they don't have that much money, um, they don't usually go and buy their own house and get it ready like we would do in America. You kind of build on a big room to your father's house. And uh, so the, the boy would go home, and he would take a year, and he would get everything ready. He would build onto the father's house, and they would do the construction, and they would get all the things ready so that he could take care of her. And uh, so the betrothal period would be a year, and then there was a big ordeal that when that time was come, and it was time to go get his bride, 
Um, sounds familiar, right, with Jesus coming back. But you in, they go get the bride. There's a big parade through the city. And he comes and greets her and finds her at the door and uh, so forth. And then they actually have, are fully married because they uh, consummate that marriage as husband and wife. But in the betrothal period, um, it was, we would call it almost like being engaged today. Um, they were not together in a sexual way. And that's why the Bible is very clear to let you know what the tension is in the culture. Uh, Verse 19, before, see it in the text? Before they came together. And and thus the problem. Um, Mary is pregnant and they haven't lived together and the marriage hasn't been finalized together. So it's a problem. Um, and, And so there are options that Joseph has. She's pregnant, and there's only two options, really, when you think about it. Either Mary has been immoral with someone else, or people would think in their community, and Nazareth was about anywhere from three to five hundred people, so it's not a big city, but with that small number of people, everybody knows everybody, and you know everybody's business, and you can't be pregnant during betrothal without every, you you can't hide it. Everybody's going to know it, all right? And it had huge social ramifications. So it's either she was immoral with somebody or Joseph and Mary were immoral together. That's really the only two possible conclusions that people would have ever come to. Both of them would be considered horrible and there were huge, huge ramifications to it. Back then they had a procedure, and I won't go through all the details, that if Mary was the one who was committing fornication or adultery in this case, um, there would be a, a whole process that they would go through that they would rip her clothes. The women would come by and all walk by Mary and say terrible things to her. Some would even spit on her. And then she would have to drink this uh, concoction that you drank it. And if you survived it, um, then you were allowed to remain there. And they were hoping if you were guilty that God would kill you with it. Um, so it was an awful, shameful thing in, in that culture uh, to go through those types of situations. Um, but that's why it says in verse 19, he was unwilling to put her to shame. In other words, he's not going to make her go through the whole thing with all the ladies in the town. He's not going to make her look bad. He's not going to tell her how bad he is. Because, you know, truthfully, according to Torah, although it wasn't frequently practiced in first century Judaism, that if you, ha- you were betrothed and you were unfaithful or you had sexual immorality in your life, you could be stoned. So it would be almost, it could be b- beyond shame. <laughs> it could be stoning, um, which again, and, and you have to understand, when you think that in our culture, it's the person that you mainly think of as being shamed and the fear that comes with that, but it would be the family. The family takes everything. If it's your daughter doing that, the blame would be just as much, if not more, on the dad and the mom. So it made your family look bad, which was horrifically a bad thing to do. And so there is a lot of, lot of public ramifications. And that's why it says in verse 19 that he wanted to divorce her quietly. He wasn't going to cause a big public thing about it. And I'm sure for Mary, we're only talking about Joseph, um, Joseph was afraid to uh, take her as his wife because if he chose, to, he chose to divorce her quietly. But if he chose to stay with her, see, then the, the understanding would be from everybody that Joseph was the one who had got her pregnant. 
And so it would make him look bad. As much as he didn't want to let her look bad, he's going to minimalize how bad she looks by divorcing her because he wants everybody to know. And the word in Hebrew is, is Sadiq. He is Sadiq. It means he's righteous. That means he upholds Torah. He keeps the law. And it was not his doing in Mary's pregnancy. And so he's going to have her take the brunt of it, obviously, but far less than most people would have done because he is a righteous man. You don't know how strong it is to have this fear and shame. Um, let me tell you how it works. This is Nazareth, which is a number of miles away from Jerusalem. And it's a, a consideration in, in comparison. It's a podunk town. Um, 30 years later, when Jesus is in his ministry, this is three decades later. Not in Nazareth, where he grew up, where people might have still known the story. This is in Jerusalem. Three, 30 years later, he's arguing with the, about origins with the scribes and Pharisees in John 8, and he tells them that Abraham is not their father. And they come back with, well, of course, because you don't know your father, because you were born of sexual immorality. And that's a phrase they use to deride him in John 8, 41. So here we got, just to tell you how bad it is for you to be pregnant and then not be your husband is awful. I mean, it could be really the end of marriage. No one would want to marry Mary after that. Not anybody worth anything. Um, therefore, she, don't know, she doesn't know who's going to take care of her. It would be her well-being. Her livelihood would be at stake. Her family wouldn't want her anymore. And that society would cast her out. And they may not let her in synagogue. Uh, it, it was a bad thing on so many levels um, socially. And so here's the fear that, that Joseph has. If I do this or I do this, depending on what option he takes... What will our families think? And then broader than that, what will our community think? Because it really, really matters. We live in a me culture. They lived in a we culture. Shame and honor was huge, huge. And not just on an individual level, way more than that. So those are big questions. Um, and so no one no one wants to jeopardize their future. And that's what he was doing based on the choice that he would make. And by the way, let me just throw in one more thing. When Mary says, after the angel tells her that she's going to have a child by the Holy Spirit, she knows that not everybody's going to understand that. In fact, she knows that Joseph won't grasp that because everyone's going to think that that's about the lamest story ever, right? And so when she says to the angel, let it be to me according to your word, you know what she's saying? that I have faith to, to do what God asked me to do, even though I'm afraid of all the social ramifications. So it's not just Joseph, truthfully. It's Mary and Joseph who have the kind of faith that when they face the fear of what people will think of them, they're still willing to obey God, even though they don't know the outcome and even though they can't control in the end what it is going to cost them. In the angel's words to Mary and Joseph, neither one of them were talked to about what the ramifications of doing what God asked them to do would cost them. They were just told, this is what's going to happen and this is what you're going to do. It didn't say how it would work out. So for both of them in facing fears, they had to come to the place where they faced their biggest social fears and they had to have the kind of faith that says, here's what God says. I don't completely understand this whole situation. How could it even happen altogether? And what's going to happen to us? And will Joseph, and when the angel told Mary, and they didn't know whether Joseph, she didn't know at the time what he would think. 
There's a lot of uncertainty. And, and let me ask you this. What is your biggest social fear? Because you can't be here tonight and pretend for one second that it doesn't matter to you what other people think. I mean, it matters so much more than you would ever let on that it's incredible how much more. I mean, in the smallest things about how you look and your hair, you won't go out, you won't go out somewhere in the winter even when you're putting a coat and a hat on because you're going to look good, right? You're, you're going to look good because it matters. So it's not because that's necessarily bad. <laughs> For all, some of us, it's really good, Right? But to look at how, how you look. And so, you know, I always used to joke around, you know, I want to get a suit that looks, because I don't have to suck this in a little bit too much, you know, because you look a certain way, right? You want your hair to look this way and your makeup to look this way. And, and you want people, why? Because it matters what they think of you. And, and you, you hear someone think something negative of you, especially if it's someone that's meaningful to you and you respect them. Or, it's trouble, isn't it? It's, it really unnerves you a little bit. And, and we struggle with it. We struggle having the faith to face our fears, our social fears, in a way that honors the fact that Jesus is with us. And let me give you some examples. If I follow biblical purity standards, see, if, and today our teenagers, young adults, even, even some of us older adults, we know what God says about purity standards. But you ask someone today who's 20 years old, 21, 25, 18, any of those ages around there, um, if they follow God's no sex till marriage standard, do you know what that makes them? Well, it makes them a virgin, and number two, it makes them completely odd in our culture. I mean, the rare, the rare unique case. It means that they're going to have to be different. It means that their unsaved friends at public high school and university are going to ask them questions. You don't do what? Right? You don't do what? Oh, you, you don't drink or get drunk? Are you serious? Hey, everybody, you're not going to the party. You don't what? You don't listen to that music? You see, you see, you see the difficulty? Because we care what people think. And so if I follow, maybe you'll think, the girl will think, if I follow purity standards, then I'll never have a date, much less get married. And so people live together. They know that it's wrong. They were grew up in the church, but they still choose to do it. Right? If I don't cuss, use foul language, make the same filthy jokes at work that everybody else does, then I won't fit in. I won't be accepted by the boss, and I'll probably miss out on some promotions in my career. If I don't go along with everybody else and laugh and joke, if I'm the one who doesn't laugh, and I don't tell those jokes, and I stay out of those groups, and I walk away and disassociate myself with that, you know what that's going to do to my career, Pastor Walker? I do. And the question is, how will you face those social fears? If I don't dress a certain way, if you choose as a young lady today to dress modestly, you will be the exception. So what do you do about it? Social ramifications. If I don't believe all the things that people are saying today about what it is to be a racist or about racism, if I don't condone LGBTQ, if I don't think that that's a natural thing and I don't tell people or agree with people that having, you know, being a homosexual or transgender is just my choice and that's all it is or I am perhaps even born that way, if I don't agree with those views and I say that they're, un they're wrong and they're actually sinful... Let me tell you this, it won't be popular and people won't like it. And if I cared so much what they say, I'll either be silent, I won't say what I need to say, and I certainly wouldn't say it straight. Have you ever felt that you worry so much, so much about people when you try to evangelism? Have you ever thought 
to friends and family members who are lost and on their way to hell? Have you ever thought that, uh, I know I'm, when I'm over there and I'm spending hours with them on Easter, man, I know this would be a great opportunity to strike, try to strike up a conversation with, about Jesus, but you know what? I know that they're antagonistic and one of them might even call themselves an atheist. And, and you know what? And every time I try to talk to them, it usually doesn't end up very well and they don't like it when I say things to them and they give me a hard time. And you know what the, the temptation is? It's because I fear what they're going to say or how they're going to respond. I just don't say anything. Isn't it just better not to cause any problems? You're a parent, and you know one of the fears we face as parents is that if I tell my kids no to certain things, like, I'm sorry, but you cannot have them as your friends or your, at least your best friend. No, I'm sorry, but you will not date that girl or date that guy you can't that you have to be in by 11 o'clock that's the curfew that here's the standards of what we do and don't do with video games or television or video or visual entertainment and by the way in our church we do go to church our family we do go to church so when you're 16 i'm sorry that's not your choice so if you say those things to your children and you tell them no we don't there are things we do and we don't do based on biblical principles you know what you're afraid of? Your kids will be mad. They'll be angry. They won't be your friend. They'll be upset, and they'll talk bad about you to their friends. You know why we don't say the things to our kids and enforce the rules, and we get mad, but we don't really consistently enforce them? You know why we're afraid? We're afraid of the social ramifications of what it might do in our families and with our kids and how we'll be able to relate to them. You go up to one of your Christian friends and that you, you know there's a thing in their life that is destroying their marriage or ruining their testimony, and you know they need to hear from it, and you know you have a platform with them, but you decide not to out of fear. You're not going to say anything to them. It's a blind spot in their life, and you know it's wrecking them, but you're not going to say anything. And the reason is because when they, they might get defensive, and they might be offended when you tell them about what's happening, and they don't see the ramifications or the consequences of it, but you're not going to say anything because you're afraid you're afraid that you might lose the friendship or what they might think of you, that you might be superior to them or holy, holier-than-thou attitude, and they might totally misinterpret what you're going to say so you don't do it. I mean, and I could go on and on, couldn't we? We could all think of scenario after scenario, right? But we have to come to the grips that social fears are huge in our lives and what we think of people and what they're going to say about us or what they're going to think about us. Joseph had to think about that. If I marry, if I stay faithful to her and marry her, or I do this to her, what is it going to do to me? What's it going to happen to me? What are people going to think of me if I stay with Mary? In fact, when the angel told him, you don't be afraid to take Mary, you're right. The fact was he was afraid to do it. He was afraid to do it because he knew that everyone would think that he was the one who got her pregnant, and he didn't want people to think that. He'd built his whole life on being Sadiq, on being righteous, and now all of a sudden he's going to flush that down the drain. Why? Because it's all gone, and it was Mary's choice. See? Until the angel talks to him. And see, that's the problem. You know why we get so afraid and let it overcome us and we don't act out in faith instead of, we act in fear instead of faith on those situations and social fears? You know why? Because Joseph is doing that when he's only talking to himself about it. The verse 20 says that while he was considering these things, and the word consider means to ponder, to weigh it in the balance, to look over it. He, he's thinking about it. Now, if I do this, this will happen to me or her. If I do this, this will, so he's looking at the options. He's weighing them out. What's my best way? So when he's only talking to himself about his issues, that he doesn't really know what to do. And fear is overcoming him to the point where the angel has to tell him, literally in the Greek, stop being afraid. 
But when God starts talking to him, and God speaks into his social fears through the angel, and he gets revelation from God, you don't have to be afraid, because let me add some information that you don't have, Joseph, and here's the information. She has not been an, an adulteress. What she has in her, the baby, is of the Holy Spirit. It changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, when you add information to a situation when you're afraid, right? So they tell you, hey, I know the COVID's bad and you could get sick and even die from it, but let me t- we have a vaccine and the vaccine. And then they give you more information. It's 80% proof this, and, and you won't go to the hospital, but you could get sick, but it won't. So the more they tell you, what, it calms you, right? And don't you, why does everybody, I mean, I've seen people who are so tired of the mask and they're so afraid and they don't go anywhere and they get the vaccine. It's like, woo, you know, it's different. Why? Why? Because they've got information, right? They've got new information. They've got things that now they've been told this is going to happen for them. Right? And so God does that. And see, when you talk to yourself and you try to overcome fears by trying to just reason it through solo on your own, it becomes a very difficult task. But when you let God's word inform your fears, when you let God's word come into the situation and let him speak truth to your heart and your mind, it makes a complete difference in what takes place in your life. So Joseph doesn't fear anymore. He's not paralyzed by it. He's not going back and forth between the options. So as soon as the angel speaks to him, you know, he gets up and he does exactly what the angel says to him. And he doesn't know what the outcome is. He doesn't know. He just knows that Mary's good and the Holy Spirit's in it. And this is all about God and all about Jesus. And Jesus is there. And it's Jesus. It's really about Jesus and not about him. That's when he comes to the realization. He stops focusing on himself and he starts focusing on God's redemptive plan and his part in it. And see, when he thinks the whole idea of Mary getting pregnant is about him and he realizes, oh, it's not really about me, it's really about Jesus, it changes his whole mentality. And it changes the way he fears. He's not paralyzed anymore. Now he obeys God like that. And now you see the pattern in his life. And every time he has a dream from now on, God says, hey, get up because a child's life is at stake. Hey, by the way, go to Egypt. Oh yeah, now it's time to come back. And every time he gets another dream, another revelation, he lets God speak into his life and it changes everything. So he doesn't fear anymore what the, the person governing is going to do. He doesn't fear that Herod's going to kill him because he gets out in time. Why? Because he knows that it's about Jesus. And he faces them with him. Second category, facing your physical fears. There are two categories of them, suffering and storms. Look at Matthew 10, if you would. Matthew 10. This is in the context, Matthew 9, 36, 10, 5, and 10, 16. All three of those verses have the phrase, and I'm sending you out, sending you out. So this is a missions one where Jesus is sending them out two by two. And, and he tells them, let me pick it up in verse 16 of chapter 10. Behold, third time, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So he's going to tell them, and I can't take the time to develop it all tonight. But here's what he tells them when they, when they go out in the future, not this time, but in the future when they represent the master. Here's what he says is going to happen to you. They are going to deliver you over. That's a phrase repeated. They're going to scourge you, drag you before kings. So here it is. Deliver you, scourge you, drag you, hate you, persecute you, put you to death. Now, that's not six of the greatest outcomes I've ever wanted to face. So here, and, and they're all physical. Deliver you, scourge you. You know what that means. Bad, that's bad all the way around. Drag you, hate you, persecute you, put you to death. 
And then in the middle of it, in the very middle of it, he says, but don't be anxious. Now, come, and that's a command. Have you ever thought about that? Hey, they're going to do all these awful things to you and beat you, and, and they're actually going to kill you, uh, but don't be worried about it. Okay. Right? Is that possible? Yeah, it is. How can he command you? Why? Because anxiety is not just an emotion. Fear is not just an emotion. It's a choice. Because you couldn't be commanded if it was just an emotion. But it's not just an emotion. It's a choice. You have a choice by the way that you respond to your circumstances of whether you're going to fear or not. And, and here he says, let me tell you, all these physical circumstances, you don't have to be anxious in it. How is that possible, Pastor Walker? Look at verse 26. He says, so, and there's three times in this text, verse 26, 28, 31, three of them, do not fear phrases, are in this text. So, have no fear of them. Same phrase, do not be afraid. That's what it is. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Second time. And do not fear. Ready? When it comes to physical fears, can I tell you this? What happens to your body is not the worst fear you could have. So here's what Jesus says. Let me give you perspective on things that can happen to you physically. They can drag you, beat you, persecute you, scourge you, kill you, and as bad as that seems, there is worse. Let me tell you this. Perspective on fear helps. It does. He says, don't fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell, and that is Jesus. He's the judge. So let me tell you this. Simple words. Don't fear man. Fear God. Don't fear what man can do. To, don't fear what they can do to you, persecute you, and what they can do to your body. I know it's bad, but you don't have to be anxious, and you don't have to be afraid in it. Why? Because God's going to make it right. What is hidden, what is covered, shall be revealed someday, and God's going to make it all right. He's got it taken care of. And they may persecute you now, but things are going to be reversed someday, right? And he says, don't fear them who can kill. And then he's going to tell you, and it's not just some, listen, it's not some distance or dissonance of, I'm telling you, don't be afraid, now do it. No, now he's going to tell you why you don't have to be afraid. Because God is not just a judge someday, but he's the God and the shepherd of your soul today. So it's not just some future that he's got to, you know, hey, after they beat you up and kill you, which is awful, someday in the resurrection, I'm going to make it right. No, it's more than that. Here's what he says. Are you, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. See the tenderness? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. In other words, you know how God cares about sparrows who aren't nearly as valuable as you? They're only for a penny. You get two of them. And, and, but you, a sparrow, not even one of them falls to the ground. He, let, let me tell you this. What kind of God is he? The sovereign God, the judge God, the compassionate God, up close God, the God who knows the details. He knows when sparrows fall. He knows how many hairs you have on your head. Right? You look at Luke 12. Whenever, whenever Jesus says that, that means he, he knows the intricacy of the details of your life. He knows how much the pain you're going through. He knows the hurt. He has it all. You can't lose a hair unless he says so. A sparrow can't fall unless he says so. And so when you're suffering physically, you know why you don't have to be afraid? Because Jesus has it all under control. The doctors don't. 
The persecutors don't. He does. He does. And he wants you to know that he cares about the details of your life. And he says to them, fear not, third time, verse 31, fear not, therefore, you're more value than many sparrows. In other words, they don't even compare to you. So fear God, don't fear men. So here's the problem. You think that we're in control, but you're really not. But that's okay. You don't have to be in control of the persecutors. You don't have to be in control of the sickness or the disease or the cancer because God is, and God cares. How much does he care about you? More than sparrows, even though he knows every detail about them and and the hairs of your head. He knows it down to the very minutia details that you don't even know about yourself. 1427. Immediately, verse 22, the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismisses the crowds. And he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. So consider chapter 10, the lecture on the teaching on fear. And consider chapter 14, the lab. Chapter 10 is the lecture on not how to face your fear. Now we're going to have the lab. You're going to have to actually do it. That's how Jesus taught. So now they're going to be in a boat. They're in a storm. And then by this time, the boat is all the way long from the land, way, way, beaten by the waves, verse 24, for the wind was against them. And the fourth watch of the night, which is about three in the morning, he came to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified, terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately, and this is a big word in our text, verse 22 has it, verse 27 has it, verse 31 has it. Take heart. He says it two other times in Matthew 9, 2, and 22. It is I, do not be afraid. So how do you face fears on the storm? How do you face when the physical fears of something might kill you, drown you? Your boat's filling up. You're in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, and there's no turning around. There's no getting to the shore. It's a hopeless situation. Here's what he says. Stop being afraid. Really? In the middle of a storm where your life might be over, the boat is filling and you're telling me not to be afraid. And he says, yes. Now, here's the thing. In the middle of the storm, as afraid as he is, Peter wants to get out of the water, get out of the boat and into the water. And he does. Not because, as too many commentators in my opinion think, because he's impetuous and he just kind of like does things on the spur of the moment and he's kind of that kind of a personality. And they, I don't think that's it at all. I think it's because Peter's the number one disciple and the greatest desire of a disciple on his rabbi is to do whatever his rabbi does. So if Jesus can walk on the water, so can I. And to me, he has a level of faith in his fear. And so he gets out of the boat and he starts walking to Jesus. In fact, he says, Lord, if it's you, not if, since it's you, since it's you and you're my rabbi and you're walking on the water in the middle of the storm and you have the authority, then I guess that means I do too because I'm following you, right? And so he gets out of the boat and Jesus says, come on. He didn't say, no, stay in. It's too bad. Don't risk it. There's none of that. No, he says, come on. You're right. Get out of the boat. Let's go. So he gets out of the boat and starts walking over there and things are great. In fact, he's doing what he's supposed to do. He's got faith in the, in, in the storm because he's with Jesus. He can face the storm. He can face walking on the water in the storm. Why? Because here's the answer. Because he's with Jesus and Jesus is with him. But as soon as the, he sees the wind and he stops seeing Jesus, he sinks. Now here's the crucial part of it. When he starts sinking, He reaches out his hand and says, Lord, save me. And again, our third immediately, Jesus says, and he reached out his hand and grabbed hold of him. Now, here's the, did you get it? 
Peter's here, Jesus is here, and when he starts sinking, Jesus is so close that all he has to do is stoop over and grab him. That means he got so afraid he started to sink, and Jesus was right next to him the whole time. Has that ever happened to you? You ever gotten a circumstance in a situation where you don't know what's going to happen? And the reality is, Jesus is right by you the whole time, and you just can't see it. You know why? Because you're so fixated on the situation around you that you miss him. See, you're, you're watching the wind and the waves and the storm and how it's beating you and what's going to cost you and the physical ramifications or whatever it might be. See, you're looking at all that and Jesus is sitting there right next to you and here's what he's telling you. Stop looking there and look at me because this is fear, this is faith. You look over here, afraid. Here is faith. And Peter stopped looking at Jesus and he started to sink, but Jesus was right there. He didn't have to go far. He was right there. What storms are you facing? See, whatever physical storm you're facing that threatens your life, threatens your well-being, threatens your health, you're always going to be afraid of it, and you won't be willing to take risk, and you won't be able to do it. You know why? It'll paralyze you. You know why? Because you're looking at the wind. You're looking at the waves. And guess what? The last time I checked, I can't control wind and waves. I can't. I can't control cancer and I can't control the pandemic and I can't control COVID-19 or none of those things, but I know that Jesus can and he's with me. So it doesn't mean I'm stupid, but it does mean that I have the faith to say, hey, this is what my master would want me to do. And so I do. So it's not just a random storm, is it? It's a lab storm. It's to put into practice the lesson that he got in the lecture in chapter 10. That you don't have to be afraid of anybody or anything especially physical things, if Jesus is with you. It doesn't mean it'll always t turn out the way you think it will, but it does mean that you can obey and do what you need to do as his disciple. So the question of the storm is this, how far will you go to follow me? Will you get out of the boat when you're afraid? Will you? Will you get out of the boat? Will you believe that if I can walk on the water, you can walk on the water, and please don't take me literally? <laughs> do you believe that? Do you believe that whatever Jesus has done that you can do, if he has suffered, you can suffer? Do you believe that? Thirdly, facing your social fears with Jesus, facing your physical fears with Jesus, and facing your personal fears with Jesus. You get to Matthew chapter 28 for the last two. And there's two times, verse 5 and verse 10, one by the angel and the second one reinforced by Jesus. Do not be afraid. The last two times the statement's used. And what the passage, in my opinion, begs you to do is to contrast the fear of the soldiers with the fear of the women. In verse 4 it says, For fear of him, meaning the angel, the guards trembled and became like dead men. And I'm going to develop more on Sunday, but the word trembled of the fear, describing the fear of them is seismos. It's the word we get seismology from. The guards are having a literal life quake. The angel in front of them, and it's crumbling them. Do you know one of the things, and I've read up on it, I know it would be boring, but it's not. If you read up on Roman soldiers and what they live like and what they wore and how they live, do you know one of the most important things that they are instructed and trained to do as a Roman soldier is to never, ever fall down to the ground Never, if possible. So when they immediately fall down to the ground, you know that this power of God and the angel is greater than anything they've ever faced because they fall down like they are dead men. That means these Roman soldiers are completely out of it with fear. I mean, so stricken by fear that they do the thing that they're told that they are never to do, they do it right off the bat. 
That's fear. I don't, I've never feared like that. But then you have the women who are standing there next to him, and in verses five and six, but, but in contrast to the angel, the, the angel says to the women, now he says, they're afraid too. Now, by the way, it's not just Roman soldiers who are lost people who are afraid of angels. All of us are. <laughs> All of us will. So they see it and they're afraid too. But the direction to them is don't be afraid, right? And he gives them a reason why. Because you seek Jesus. See? Because you want to be with Jesus. Because he's alive and he's with you. See, you're not like the Roman soldiers. So you both face the same fear and you both are afraid. But here's the difference. The soldiers just stay afraid, not the women. And I love this part because when you really get Jesus in the middle of your fears, he doesn't just take them. He doesn't just triumph over them. Listen to this. He transforms them. And what you're going to find in this text, here's what it says in verse 8. I want to read it for you because our time's up, I know. Verse 8, so they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, mega joy. See, the, the fear was still there. They're not sure all would happen, but now they've got great joy now because Jesus is alive. And can I tell you, great joy is a little phrase that bookends and frames out gospel of Matthew in its entirety because it's only used twice, once at the beginning and here at the end. And you know what the beginning was? It's when the magi see the star that leads them to Jesus. It says they looked up in the sky and saw the star with, and they were filled with great joy. You know what it is? Both of those instances are people that book in Matthew's gospel. They're both seeking Jesus. Magi are seeking Jesus. The women are seeking Jesus. And can I tell you this? You know how you calm your fears? You know how you can have your fears transformed into actual joy? Is always keep seeking Jesus, making him the center of everything in your joy. I mean, in your fear. Make Jesus what you're after in your fear. Not your well-being, not even your own safety, as much as it is making Jesus the center of it. And can I can tell you this? When you do that, he'll transform your joy, your, your fear, into not just joy, great joy. And how much does he want to do this? And let me close with this. The angel tells him in verse 5, don't be afraid. But they leave the angel and do what he said, go tell the disciples. And they're not, they haven't even got there yet. They're walking to find the disciples and Jesus appears to them. And he wants to tell them the same thing. Listen, he backs up what the angel says and tells them for the second time in verse 10, don't be afraid. And you know what the word he uses to greet them? Charisma, rejoice. He, this is a, a formal greeting, but it's also the word that means rejoice. He, wants to, he just comes out and walks up to him and says, rejoice. Why? Look at me. That's enough to know. Look, I'm here. I'm alive. That's what we need, isn't it? We need to know that Jesus is here. He's with us. And that truth, that reality that Easter emphasizes more than anything other, any other truth, is the reason why we can conquer our fears. We can face them. Face all of them and have them transformed if we face them with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful passage, these wonderful statements in Matthew's gospel about your view and how we can face our fears if we face them with Jesus. I pray, Lord, that for those tonight who are listening and are facing fears, may they not face them on their own. May they not face them in their own power and wisdom and strength and resources but may we face them with you. And if so, Lord, we pray that that would make all the difference. And I pray they might find that joy in their fears because of you. And we ask this in your name. Amen.